0: Before we start the podcast, everyone, my new children's book, Different, is now available for purchase. The website is still in the process of being constructed, and that is going at a snail's pace because I'm doing it myself, but it will be up shortly at thedifferentbook.com. In the meantime, if you want to get a pre-order copy, I'll send it to you. You can Venmo me at thedifferentbook, very easy, at Book. And if you have children, ages five and up is what I think the age range is for. Younger than that, probably not uh, in their wheelhouse yet. But it's a book about celebrating the fact that we're all different. We all have things about ourselves that we may want to change or we fixate on. But for everybody else, it doesn't matter. And we should all embrace our differences because we're all different in our own ways. And I think it's a good message for kids. I sent it out to a few friends who have kids and I've gotten some very good feedback so far so please check it out spread the word i'm doing this all myself different at the different book on venmo it's twenty dollars to send uh twenty dollars and your address and i'll send it out to you ten percent of the proceeds of every book sold goes to the charity emily's entourage which fights a unique mutation of the disease cystic fibrosis please spread the word cystic fibrosis is a terrible disease they are making strides and they are curing different forms of cf The specific form that Emily's Entourage is fighting, there is no cure for yet. So that's why I'm giving as much money as I can to Emily's Entourage to fight this unique mutation of cystic fibrosis. Also, if you haven't yet, please make sure to rate this podcast five stars. Leave a review, it really helps. And share it with a friend if you're enjoying it. Rate it five stars, it takes 10 seconds. Please, please do it. I see that a lot of you have, a lot of you haven't. And it really does help. Just uh, get the podcast out there and climb the charts. Welcome
1: to the Daffy Show. Let's go.
0: Hey. All right. Welcome to the GK Show. Fun music at the beginning. Yeah. You're having a good day. Let's start the pod.
2: Okay, so Tim, I wanted to ask you first, just on so framing this right, because I read your book, Personal Fall, a long time ago, and I reached out to you, and uh, we talked a little on, back and forth online here and there for the last what, like decade or something. So the, the kind of the, the talking points about you the NBA kind of tried to frame it like, oh, there was this one ref. He was such a jerk. He he was betting on games and fixing games. What, what a bad one person this was. And I just want to clarify, the forward to your book was written by the lead FBI investigator on your case who said that your story checked out better than any witness he's ever talked to in 40 years of being in the FBI. That's correct, right? Oh,
3: yeah, Jeff, I got an answer for everything. So don't feel shy about asking me. Nothing's off limits. So you you just go shoot from the hip, and, and I'll, I'll just tell it like it is, pal. Same with Tommy. He doesn't care what you ask him. You know, it is what it is. We fucked up and made a lot of mistakes. So even if it's embarrassing, we'll, we're we okay with it.
2: Okay. So well, I want to know how do you feel about the talking points that you were fixing games because the way I understood it was, the league was in not, not like in pro wrestling fix, but the league was obviously wanting big market teams and certain teams to win and certain series to go longer for more money, which makes sense. Any business, you know, wants to make more money. And you just knew that. So then you would bet on games. Is that correct?
3: Oh yeah. Yeah. We can go through the whole story, but yeah, I'll I'll describe it in detail what I did and how I did it and how the NBA was involved and, and, uh, You know yeah it's actually funny that they wanted to say i was one bad apple because i got i got a lot of good stuff for you that's going to expose that
2: yeah so how do you feel about them i mean how do you feel about them trying to portray it as you were this one bad apple and kind of putting everything they were doing and the other refs were doing on you yeah
3: it's kind of comical and i'll tell you why there's a captain in the colombo crime family his name is michael francis i don't know if you know the name but he's now a preacher and he said in the 1990s he had three NBA referees on his personal payroll, and none of them were named Tim Donaghy. So it was going on, you know, when I got in there, before I get in there, while I was in there. Uh, Dick Bavetta was their top referee at the time, and he said he was the, you know, NBA's go-to guy. He was put on Game 6s to make sure they went to Game 7. So there was a lot of stuff that the NBA did. And, and like you said, Phil Scala, who was the – arresting FBI agent for the Gambino crime family, wrote the four for my book and said I told the truth at every turn, and a lot of this is in the book. So, you know, it's something that uh, the NBA tried to paint me as one bad apple, but anyone that really knows the story and digs into it, and with the movie coming out, Inside Game, they're going to see that there was a lot of different things that took place, and the NBA had a lot of culpability in it.
2: Yeah, and, I mean, it's it's interesting because after I read your book, I mean, I grew up in Southern California. I was a Laker fan. And I remember ESPN Classic would re-air games. And one time I was at my parents' house after I read your book and the 2000 uh, series with the Lakers versus the Blazers was on. And I remember in your book you talked about how, you know, Sabonis was really guarding Shaq really well, so they had to get him out of the game. and and, And you even said, if you listen to the announcers, they're saying, like, all these bad calls against the bonus are kind of like, oh, geez, I didn't really see much there. And, like, every call against the bonus is just some weird bullshit thing. And I'm watching it, and it kind of just made me feel sick. You know what I Because mean? I remember watching that as a teenager, and I'm all excited, and the Lakers are coming back. And it was just – it was so obvious that there were, I think, like four calls against the bonus. And once he got out of the game, that's when, you know, Kobe crosses over whoever and lobs at the shack, and it's like this big, iconic thing. Um, how do you feel – I want to know what you feel about this. Obviously, the players who win championships or whatever, and when they're asked about it, they're going to say, oh, yeah, what? You know, come on, that's just a bunch that's like a conspiracy theory. How does it make you feel – I mean, what else are they going to say, though? You know what I mean? But how does that make you feel when you see people just try and brush it off like this clearly was nothing?
3: Well, it's funny that you bring that up with the Lakers because I don't know if you know this interview, but David Stern was on national TV at one point, and the reporter said to him, Mr. Stern, what's your idea – NBA finals matchup and the arrogance that this guy had, his answer was the Lakers versus the Lakers. And we all knew that that's what brought in, uh, you know, the (laughs) the best global attention and that's what the league wanted. And, you know, Dick Bavetta talked about it openly how uh, he was put on a lot of game sixes to make sure game sevens happened. And he was put on there to make sure big market teams advanced. He did it a lot for the New York Knicks. He did it a lot for the LA Lakers. And he didn't hide it. He talked about it openly in the locker room. And, you know, that famous game in 2002 with the Sacramento Kings and the Los Angeles Lakers, uh, the famous game six where every call went against Sacramento, uh, and he forced a game seven thinking Sacramento was most likely going to win on their home court, and they lost, and L.A. won the championship that year. And, And really Sacramento should have a ring on their finger, and unfortunately they don't.
2: Yeah, I mean, I even uh, I remember when the Lakers, uh, when they played the Celtics and it went seven games. I mean, that series, it was just so obvious how they were extending the series. And, I mean, obviously I read your book and everything after that or before that. But, I mean, one game it was like, oh, we're going to get Kobe in a little bit of foul trouble. And the next game, Ray Allen, uh, you know, he's playing well, so we're going to get him out. And then game seven, it kind of seemed like they, if anyone remembers game seven, I think that was 2010 or they just kind of rolled the ball out. And then, you know, Kobe went like six for 24. Everybody was just kind of hacking each other and they weren't calling much because it was like, oh, we got to game seven, Boston versus L.A. It just kind of seemed like everybody got what they wanted. And Then we had this ugly game seven after the other games were all kind of manipulated.
3: Yeah, it's no doubt about it. The league definitely uh, programs and trains the referees, especially during the playoff series, how to get these series to go four, five, six, and hopefully seven games. And a lot of times when the bigger market teams are in it, like the Lakers, you know, that's what brings global attention and and they want those star players in the the big market cities to advance and they really don't hide it. And they program and train the referees through tape sessions in morning meetings and in the locker room and even come in at halftime and dictate what to call and what to look for. So uh, it's something that was exposed in this whole gambling scandal in 2007 that, that I was involved in and and Phil Scala has come out uh, and, and said that he went into the office of David Stern in the NBA and told them they had a lot of business that they they had to clean up in, in the way they handled things.
2: Yeah, and so if you go a little bit more in depth, because obviously, or not obviously, but I, I believe in your book, you say, like you just said, they come in and they kind of direct you. No one's coming in and saying, hey, guys, we wanted to go seven games, so do this, this, and this. It's just kind of all implied. Is that correct?
3: Yeah, I mean they they would come in and they would um let's say we were in game 3 of a series and Houston was down to Dallas 3 games to none. Okay? Um okay. they they would say to you um you know, look at Yao Ming. He's he's walking in in the post or look at Yao Ming. Um he's he's um setting illegal screens. They're up and remember, they're up 3 games to none against uh, Dallas. So they're going to start showing you things that they want called against Houston that's going to put Dallas at an advantage. And with that being said, Dallas is going to come back being down in the series uh, to to three games to one, three games to two, uh, create more revenue, more parking, more ticket sales, more uh, TV revenue. And that's how they get these series to advance and and put put more money in in each and every owner's pocket.
2: Is this something that is, I mean, it seems obviously it's known within the league uh, itself, but like is it known with with, – Do the players know? Do the coaches know? Do the GMs know? Did every like are the organizations aware? Like yeah, they try to extend games. So oh, we're up, you know, three one. We're probably not going to get called this game. Is that a thing?
3: Absolutely. And in fact, in, in uh, there was one series where Jeff Bunghundy came out and told him somebody in the in the league office had told him that calls were going to go against him in a playoff series, and he came out and went public and wouldn't say who his contact was. It was Donnie Vaden at the time. And he was fined $100,000 because he went public and said it. The, the players know, the, the, uh, the coaches know, uh, the league officials know. And, and the funny thing is, Michael Jordan has his own basketball camp in the summer, and the NBA referees used to go to it. And he used to sit down the referees that went there and said, flat out, everybody knew that Dick Bavetta cheated and was doing things <laughs> in games. And every time you saw Dick Bavetta out on the floor, you just hoped he was cheating for you that night which kind of
2: made right. everybody laugh, but, you know, it, it was out there. People knew what was going on. Yeah, And so uh, another thing that kind of was, was annoying, because I, I remembered this press conference was at the time when this stuff was happening, I was just watching a lot of basketball. But you talked about how Steve Javi just straight up did not like Allen Iverson as a, I guess, as a person or something. So you you kind of knew certain reps like, oh, if this guy's repping a game where this player's in it that player's team's probably going to have a better chance of losing because, you know, he doesn't like him. And you, you talked about, I believe it was Iverson's first game with the Denver Nuggets, and Iverson even said in the press conference, that guy just doesn't like me. I don't think he said Steve or something, or Steve Jabby, but he just was referring to him and said, he just doesn't like me, man, because that guy's never liked me. And yeah, that's It was, exactly it was funny, in to.
3: that whole situation, um, you know, Steve Jabby had a problem with the Iverson. Iverson actually threatened to kill him and – we all wanted Allen Iverson suspended, and all they, all they did was fine him $25,000. I had the next game with Bernie Fryer and Gary Zelensky. We were in the locker room, and we decided we were going to go out that night and call palming violations um, against Allen Iverson in, in the first half. And we kind of laughed because we knew we did it all the time. We knew it was never called. But we knew that the violation was within the rules. And I called up Tommy Martino that day, and I said, listen, watch this game bet against Denver. I forget who they were playing at the time. Uh, We're going to call palming violations against Iverson in in the first half. He was watching the game. He was texting me at at halftime laughing so hard because we went out there and we all called palming violations against him. Iverson comes up to me during a free throw and says, hey, Tim, how long is this going to go on for? I said, what are you talking about, Alan?" He goes, you know what, what I'm talking about. And he just laughed because he knew. He knew it was his time in the hopper. And he was hoping it just wasn't a long time that we kind of stuck it to him. And i never forget talking to Tommy the next day, and and he was laughing. And that was the type of information I passed along to him. He passed along to people in the Gambino crime family. And they bet millions of dollars on these plays, and they won.
2: Yeah, I want to talk to Tommy, too, in a second. But I want to ask you real quick. Is there a – because – I mean, I'm sure you've looked into this. Is there some sort of legal uh, path you can take because – what they were doing they they blame on you publicly there's some sort of uh i mean it's not uh libel or whatever libel's when it's something written right but i don't know is there some sort of slander charge you can have against the league for just kind you of piling I've on, never stuff thought on you?
3: about that i i'd I like that idea to be honest with you uh i know if i would have had uh you know an attorney at the time that would have taken on the case i was told i could have sued them for millions of dollars for torturous interference in a business relationship because they went into Random House with attorneys and got my book deal squashed. They went into the offices of 60 Minutes and tried to get my segment on 60 Minutes squashed. Uh, but they turned around and basically told them to to go fuck themselves. And not only did they do one segment, they did two segments. And I forget uh, at the time, but my my segment was the second rate highest rated segment in the history of 60 Minutes, only behind one of the president's interviews. So uh, it, mm. it was a big story. It's still a big story today. Uh, obviously, when you talk about the mob, you talk about gambling, you talk about drugs, you talk about the NBA. It's a story that nobody can seem to get enough of, and uh, every time I think it's going to die, it, it kicks back up in the news. And, and now, of course, as you know, uh, you know Inside Games coming out, which is the movie that opens up November 1st. Uh, you know, uh, it, it dealt with a lot of uh, Tommy Martino, the screenwriter, and Paulie Martino, who's a venture capitalist out of Silicon Valley really putting this whole deal together, and they did a great job. Uh, we have great actors who's, uh, you know, playing the parts, and Will Sasso, Eric Mabius, and uh, Scott Wolf, so, you know, I- I'm-, I'm pretty confident that the, the movie's going to be a hit and it's going to catch on, and it's a, it's a great, uh, you know, situation where it has a great message about choices and-, and how poor choices we all made and how we fucked up our lives tremendously and it not only affected ourselves but the people we love the most and that's our family so you know I I didn't want to portray it in the big screen but with the message being so big uh, Tommy Martino coming out with his book also called Inside Game recently uh, donating profits to a a school outside of Springfield Pennsylvania which has physically and mentally challenged uh, adults it was just an opportunity that I couldn't pass up on because I felt finally some good was going to come from the whole story.
2: Right. Yeah, and I watched the trailer to it I, when you told me you're out here promoting Inside Game. I thought it might be a documentary, but I thought that you know it's a a feature, it's a movie, and it looks great. It looks really entertaining. And, and you know what's so,
3: funny? If I would have been involved uh, from the beginning, although I will say Scott will play Tommy. Well, you would have been perfect to play Tommy. Just your personality, your looks. You, know, <laughs> you, you you meet Tommy. I'm telling you, you guys would hit it off, and and you would have been great as an actor playing him. So
2: <laughs> well. There's a lot. Of, there's a lot of missed opportunities in my career. I know, tell you what. Into. You know why?
3: He has the fetish for the good-looking ladies, just like you do. And how <laughs> good-looking your wife is—that's the exact type of lady that he likes. So make sure he doesn't go near <laughs> your wife.
2: I, that's why I did this phone call over uh, the phone. You know what I mean? I, they, they Chip said I could come to the room. I said I don't know. You know what I,
0: mean? <laughs> I don't I want to really. you
2: know, get close to my wife. How did um. I was just curious if there's any sort of defamation of character, because I mean, when people hear your name that are just kind of tangentially associated with like watching the NBA, they just think like, oh, that's that ref, that's that guy that like ruined the NBA, but like he he would fix games. I'm just I was just curious if you've ever pursued any sort of defamation thing, but uh, well,
3: if you noticed, you know, David Stern came out early on and said I was one bad apple. Uh, yeah. Legal legal gambling will cost you your job, you know, meaning that if anyone gambled, uh, you know, they would lose their job. Illegal gambling will cost you your freedom, meaning I was going to go to jail. Then he found out 55 out of 58 NBA referees gambled. He immediately shut up and never talked about it again and really never went public with anything. You never really hear the NBA making any any more statements about me because they know uh, that they're going to uh, open up a can of worms that uh, they can't put a lid on if they continue to do that. And I like your idea about suing them, and, and I can guarantee you, they'd never want to go into a court of law because I have the truth on my side, and, um, you know, it, it, it's a great idea, but they never really come out and make any statements about me.
2: Well, I mean, it's the same. It's, it's not just the NBA. I mean, the NBA works with all these networks that put their games on, so every now and then, you know, if I'm listening to, you know, Colin Cowherd or, or somebody at ESTN in my car or something, and your name pops up, it's just kind of like this laughed off thing, like, oh, yeah, that... Like they kind of toe the company line and the talking points of the one bad apple thing. And I just think it's, it's so obvious that, yeah, if you're putting on NBA games on ESPN, you're not going to do a segment on like, Hey, this Tim Donaghan telling the truth. Oh, the FBI said his story totally checked out about how the whole league was doing this. They just kind of don't talk about it. It's kind of the, they, the selective told, coverage of the today,
3: news. Today, uh, you know, between me and you, I'm doing outside the lines with Jeremy Schaap and, okay. uh, you know, they're not going to like what I have to say, of course, and it's going to be national news again. Uh, and, and again, they just want this story to go away. But it's it's the story that's never going to die when you talk about all those aspects that people love when the mob, gambling, uh, you know, uh, women and, and drugs, everything that's in the movie uh, is something that, you know, a lot of people live for and enjoy and, and want to go see. So uh, it, it's a cross between – uh, the Hangover and Goodfellas, and, and uh, people love that stuff. And those movies were successful, and I think Inside Game uh, doesn't have the big name actors uh, that are associated in those films, but, you know, it, it's it's definitely going to be something that people are going to want to go see.
2: Yeah, so Tommy, I just want to bring you in, sorry for ignoring you for so long, but how did you guys, how did this all start? Because, Tim, you didn't, you know, have a grand scheme to become an NBA ref so you could bet on games or something you just became an NBA ref and saw this was happening and so how did how did the betting come in, uh like come about and how did Tommy? I mean, how did you get involved with everything
1: i got involved because of the professional gambler james batista was in debt to people you don't want to owe money to and he knew that i was friends with timmy so he searched me out after a little bit of a hiatus. We were friends since we were children, but he disappeared for a while. And me and Timmy talk about it all the time. Now we know what really happened. So he got into debt. He was uh, doing some stupid stuff with other people's money who had connections to organized crime, and he lost a lot of money. And in order to get that money back, he needed somebody like Timmy who had inside information to give the games to me, to give them to Timmy, so that he could get the money back for these guys who he, owed, who he lost their money. So Timmy, uh, Jimmy came searching me out, came to my house and said, Tommy, can I work from your home? It was a way for him to get his foot in the door to eventually get me to get, have a meeting with Timmy, him, and myself so that he could ask Timmy because for, for the games because – Evidently, Timmy was giving these games to a local business uh, a salesman, uh, a local insurance salesman named Jack and Cannon. And Jimmy Batista caught wind of it and said, "Oh shit, I want Timmy to give me the games." So he came to yeah. me. He didn't. He wasn't straight with me at first. He just said, "Listen, Tommy, Timmy's in trouble. We got to talk to him next time he's in Philly." So I called Timmy up. I said, "Tim, when are you in Philly again?" I never told him Jimmy wanted to meet him because I knew that that would be detrimental to Timmy's job. And I didn't want Timmy to get in trouble. I really thought that Jimmy was coming to me to help Timmy out. So I set up the meeting at the Marriott with Timmy. Timmy thought it was just me coming, and I showed up with Batista. And I remember going to the Marriott, and when I walked in with Jimmy, Batista, Timmy looked like he saw a ghost. He looked at me and said, what the fuck? And I said, Tim... Jimmy's got a message for you. You're in trouble. He found out that you were betting games with Jack and Cannon. Jimmy told me on the way to the airport, Timmy's betting games with Jack and Cannon. And word is on the street that he's doing it, and he could get in big trouble and lose his job. So I'm coming down here to let him know people are hearing it and words on the street. When in reality, we went down there, we sat down, and Batista made Donegan an offer to give him the games and not Jack anymore.
2: So, how, so, if, so did Jack talk? Is that how uh, Batista got wind of it?
1: So, Batista worked with this kid named Pete Regieri, who also oh. had ties to organized crime. So, where we grew up in an area called Delaware County, it's a haven for bookmakers, mobsters, NBA referees, drug dealers. So Batista worked alongside with this guy named Pete Ruggieri. They were both professional gamblers. Jack Kincannon was giving Tim's games to this kid Pete Ruggieri. Batista, being that he worked alongside of him, saw that they, he was going on a roll. I think they, Batista told me that Jack went 15-0 and 0 with Tim's games. So pretty he, good. His eyes lit up. And that's when he came searching for me. Don't give him to Jack anymore or Pete Ruggieri. Give him to me. So no longer was Jack, after we met Timmy at the Marriott, Timmy said, okay, I won't give it to Jack anymore. I'll give him to you guys because evidently Jack was making a shitload and not giving Timmy his rightful share.
2: And Patisa, I see.
1: Yeah, I'm sorry. Batista threatened Timmy to give him the games.
2: Yeah, that's what I was going to get to. That's what I, from what I remember from the book is that you guys are kind of threatened into it. So at that point, I mean, what what would you guys say? Do you have any, I, it sounds like a situation in life, sometimes you get in situations and then you're all of a sudden it's just like, you know, steamrolling and it's just like piling on and you can't get out of it. You know, you kind of painted into a corner. Is there anything you guys would have done differently? Like what are, What are your biggest regrets, I guess, about the whole thing?
3: Well, I think the biggest regret for me, unfortunately, is I shouldn't have been involved in gambling with my position as an NBA referee. Uh, You know, you you look back and you you wish you could turn back time, but unfortunately you can't. We all make bad decisions. Tommy and I certainly have, uh, you know, and and we admit that, and and we hope by those poor decisions people can learn from it and understand that those choices are important. Uh, Tommy had a great relationship with his father and his brothers and his mom, uh, and, and, of course, You know, that was damaged, like my uh, relationship with my parents and my brothers was damaged. But, you know, we're lucky that we had great families. Uh, You know, they stood by us at every turn. They took every bullet that was fired at us from uh, the media and and the judicial system and really supported us. And if not, you know, I know I wouldn't be here, and and Tommy can speak for himself. But, you know, without, you know, good friends and good family, I would have never survived. So uh, I'm just fortunate in in that area.
1: If it wasn't for my dad, I'd be living on crates in South Philly somewhere. Right. He he saved my house. But, you know, uh, one bad decision can shape your life and your destiny. You know, I've learned from making bad decisions. I used to make – my decisions used to be based on what made other people happy. So now when I make a, a decision, I make a decision based upon what's good for me and my family.
2: Right, and what what were the punishments that you guys got legally? You, you guys did a little bit of time, right?
1: Yeah. Timmy was in a country club. <laughs> <laughs> Just kidding. We, we hosted, You know, a, a week in any jail is tough. You know, I did a year and a day because I was l- l- the less the least culpable of everybody. But um, Timmy did 15 months. Jimmy did 15 months. We did our time in MDC Brooklyn. I spent 30 days in the hole. Timmy spent some time in the hole. So, you know. Jeez. And I don't know if you know what the hole is, Keith, but the hole is when, you know, they, Solitary, play,
3: they right? put you, you know, uh, feed you like Charles Manson and, and let you out an hour a day, maybe give you a shower every other day. So it's, it's you know, like you see in the movies, the, the hole is, is the shoe and, and you're in a, a six by six cell on a steel cot and people are staring at you through a window. Uh, watching every move you make so you don't commit suicide. That's how uh you know hard it is to, to mentally get through something
2: like that. Oh yeah, it sounds terrible. I mean I had a family member, I won't even say how he's related, but uh 'cause he's doing really well now <laughs> I wanna mention but he was in and out of prison his whole life. I remember I visited him uh when I was in high school and it's I mean prison is just like it's not I mean sometimes in T V shows up they make it look like it's you know, could it's not as bad or something. It's fucking terrible. You know what I mean? And I remember he would tell me when he was out, we I uh, talked to him sometimes, and uh, about what it was like in there. I knew he didn't want to talk to us. He was in there for a while, and he was like, "Yeah, if a guy wants to fight you, you just have to fight that guy, or else a bunch of dudes are just gonna jump you." And I'm like, "God," oh, and I'm a guy who's like always just been a wise ass, but I always talk my way out of it when guys want to beat my ass. You know, Cause I'm like, "Oh, it's gonna happen. I don't want to fight. You know what I mean? You're just gonna punch a guy who's not even punching back." So like, uh, Geek, that's just how. Geek, that's how I, one, yeah. one of the
3: one of the best things about Tommy's book is, and I'm gonna let him you know give away a story in the book because no, 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 no. I, I read it hysterically on the plane coming here it is a guy that was was messing with him and I'm going to let him share with you what he did to this guy cuz it it was, it was
1: classic Tommy and it was hysterical um this kid Jimmy who was the uh, camp bully so I call him I call him the camp bully because I later got transferred to Boston after spending those 30 days in the hole and I ended up in Fort Devens which was a lot better than uh, MDC Brooklyn. But, um, you know, this camp bully went around picking on everybody. And I know he was, like, all state in wrestling. And he was 10 years younger than me. So, you know, when I'm, I was 44, he was 34. It's a big difference, Keith, you know, when you get older. And
2: yeah. he's in better
1: shape than me. I just got out of the hole. I was down to 130 pounds. I had atrophy. I thought I was going to die. And... um he challenged me to a fight on my birthday. Jeez. And, uh, you know, I didn't want to fight the guy, but I didn't. I, you can't back down because if you back down, you're in more trouble if you get your ass kicked. Right. You know? But he wanted to go in the bathroom and he said, Come on, Tommy, let's go 60% in the bathroom. I said, Jimmy, I'm not going to go 60% in the bathroom. I only know one way to go, and that's 100%. If you want to go in the bathroom, let's do it. But. Let's do it, right. I was scared shitless because I didn't want to fight him, but I wasn't about to back down. Right. But, uh, you know, a lot of people in there, you know, they call you a snitch, and, you know, every day you got to be on guard, and every day you got to fight your way through jail. I mean, you don't want to be in jail. And, uh, I mean, when I worked in the kitchen in Brooklyn, they were reeling food in on these crates, and at the bottom of the crate it said, Not for human consumption, inmates only. And I wish I had a cell phone to take a picture of that, because the God's honest truth, and that food is expired. I remember I stole an orange and I hid behind this big vat that that washed and dried all the um, plates and stuff that the inmates ate off of. So I hid behind because if they catch you eating, you know. They'll, they'll throw you in the hole if, they, if you stole food. But I, I wanted an orange so bad, I was starving. I ripped the yeah. top of the orange off, and it looked like I had a, it was a tarantula staring back at me. But it was uh, it was mold. So I tore the mold off and ate the rest of the orange. That's how hungry I was. He he yeah. just smoked a big joint, so he doesn't even know what story I'm t-
2: trying to tell yeah. myself. But this
3: guy, <laughs> I was messing with him in prison. So what he did was he took his nail clippers and and the guy was real meticulous about his bed and being clean. He cut off all the calluses on his feet and his nails, and he put them all over the guy's bed and under his pillow and really freaked the son of a bitch out. So
2: that was the story <laughs>
3: I wanted him to tell. <laughs> he, got a, he got a little off track. He's
2: eating too many edibles here out in California. <laughs> this, oh, yeah, <laughs> it will take, take over for you. No, but I understand about the prison food because I remember when I when I was visiting my family member. You know, you have to you you can't hand inmates money. You know, so I had to walk into the vending machines in the visiting area, and I and get him something. And he was so excited to eat the vending machine cheeseburger. That is just like some pre wrapped thing, the worst yeah. cheeseburger ever. But he was he was so excited. He's like, yeah, you go. This is way better than what we have in there. And I just remember thinking, what the fuck are they feeding you in ah, there that you're you excited
3: about? I those burgers out of that machine with a with a Pepsi or a
1: Coke. You were in heaven.
2: Yeah. Is Who's, is this, one, yeah. Go I ahead, once, Tommy.
1: I once cleaned out the uh, the the CEOs always had like a big. It was Christmas time, and they had a Christmas party. So they sent a bunch of inmates in to clean up after the party two days later, and I found a pizza here in, in the trash can. Me and my buddy Johnny DeProspo. We pulled the pizza out. It was stale as shit. But it was like, and a couple of them had bites taken out of it. We devoured the rest of the pizza. And we, we laugh about it today. But we were so <laughs> hungry. We didn't give a shit. We didn't get good food. So we ate. Pizza out of a trash can, and not only that, there was a dead mouse inside of the trash can, but we didn't give a shit. <laughs> yeah,
2: no, I, I, I get it. Sounds like a terrible thing. Look, I don't want to take too much of your time because so I know you guys have other interviews to do. Um, I wanted to ask you uh, was there anybody in the sports world? I know you did 60 minutes, Tim. Was there anybody in the sports world who would even touch your story for either of you guys when it first came out, or was everybody just kind of like hands off?
3: You know what happened? I I did a ton of interviews. Tommy did a lot of interviews. He's doing a lot of interviews now with his book coming out, Inside Game, that is already in its second printing. So, um, you know, little by little, people can't get enough of the story, and ESPN does articles. Sports Illustrated does articles. I know it pisses the NBA off because they want it to go away, and they really try to control the the storyline in this whole thing. But it's the story that won't go away. and, And with this independent film coming out, uh, you know, I think it's just going to explode. So, um, you know, it, again, it's it's not something I want portrayed out on the big screen, but it, it's a great message. Proceeds are going to Elwin, which is a school for mentally and physically challenged uh, boys that Tommy's done work at his whole life. Uh, and, you know, there's a kid there that Tommy grew up with and took care of his whole life. So, you know, with that being said, we're starting to see the, the back end of the tunnel where we're seeing some good come from this story other than the fact that we both got divorced and we're happy as hell because of
2: that. But now we're doing some other good stuff. All right, one of the last questions. Are there anything that any of the refs said that particularly stood out to you that kind of bothered you personally, someone you maybe were friends with, and then they said something?
3: No, it's funny, Keith. None of the referees bother me. Everyone that retires or gets uh, let go, they all contact me. I have conversations with them all. They all say, you know, how they enjoyed being friends with me. They're sorry that, you know, they didn't contact me during their time as still an employee of the NBA and and that they wish nothing but uh, good for me and my family. I've I've been contacted by players, even Rashid Wallace, who, you know, we were going to fist fight out in the parking lot, and he was (laughs) trying to spend it and and lost a million dollars Has wished me nothing but good luck. Shaquille O'Neal the other day, I did a podcast with him, and, and he was nothing but hopeful for me to be doing well in the future so I think people are are forgiving they realize we all make mistakes in life mine and Tommy's unfortunately was played out for the world to see but again we're we're, we're seeing light at the end of the tunnel and and some good things are starting to happen and and there's a positive message in all this and, and a lot of people are going to learn from it
2: all right so then the last question just on a lighter note I want to know are there any players that you liked any players you didn't like any funny stories you have just for basketball fans who would like to hear Yeah, you know, I'll
3: give you a good one, because I just saw David Robinson in the airport yesterday, and one of my first two years in the league, I got caught in a stack. He took a jump shot, got hit across the elbow. I didn't blow the whistle. Timeout happened. He came right up to me. He says, what are you looking at? I just got fouled right across the arm. (laughs) I said, you know what, David? I I apologize to you. I got caught behind you. I didn't see it. Obviously, I I can tell you got hit by your reaction, and, and I'm sorry. And he could have been a complete asshole, he patted me on the back and he said, "You know what, Tim? Don't worry about it. And and I, I know people miss things and don't don't worry about. it. Just try not to, you know, do it again. And and I always remembered that from him. And and I always thought to myself, anytime I have the opportunity, I'm going to err on the side of giving him a call because he was such a good guy. And you know, there's there's always players like Gary Payton and Rashid Wallace on the floor that their emotions get the best of them uh, and and their uh, tempers are are great because they're so competitive. But off the floor, for the most part, all these guys are great guys and and do a lot for the community. So, you know, to say something bad about them, you know, I I just wouldn't do it. The, the only person I have anything negative to say about is that little fat prick, David Stern. He could have handled this whole thing differently, and, and he didn't.
2: Right. You know, my, I have a friend, on a personal note, I have a friend who he played basketball overseas professionally, and now when he retired, he came back, and he had some NBA refs or somebody offered him, like, hey, like, you know, they really like guys that played professionally, you know, to, to be ref like we can kind of streamline you into the whole system or whatever. And I remember telling him like that's awesome, man. You'd be an MBA rep, that'd be great. You know, I heard you get paid a lot. That'd be fun. And then he goes, Are you fucking kidding me, dude? He goes, I don't want to stand on the court and have thousands of people yelling you're fucking piece of shit after every call and everybody hates you. you just kind of stand there with your hand behind your back. i tell you, you what there's, there's,
3: there's not a greater feeling in the world when you stand out on that floor and you make a call, and you know you're right. And there's 20,000 people screaming at you, and the hair on your back, your neck is standing up. It, <laughs> I I loved it. I really did. I I used to even make calls that were borderline, go against the home team, just to have that crowd come down on me. I I loved it. Okay.
2: All right. <laughs> well, look, guys. Thanks for giving me the time. Uh, best of luck with the movie. I'm definitely gonna watch. I'll try and get up and see it today at the, or not today, but sometimes week at the film festival. And uh, best of luck with everything, and uh, hope to talk to you guys both soon.
3: Real quick, uh, uh, Keith, if you're at the film festival tomorrow night, uh, you know, you got my cell. Call me and let me know, because uh, we'll have you sit with me and Tommy. We'll have a blast. Yeah, I want to meet you, Keith. No, he wants to meet your wife. He's hoping your
2: wife shows up. (laughs) That'll be tough for her to get out of the house with the two little kids.
1: (laughs) Keith, he's exaggerating. what he does is it's him that's uh, the pervert. Now,
2: he's, <laughs> he's, I
3: do
1: have to tell you, of course, you know
3: this. You put a picture on Facebook all the time. She's hot, man. You should be proud of that.
2: Oh, my wife's the best, yeah. She's even a sweeter person than she is good-looking, so that's good. Too. God that's bless you too Well, right. Dave, God bless you guys, you. too, man. I really appreciate your time. And, uh, one, like one quick I say, question for you. Yeah, yeah. She doesn't
3: have a twin sister for me, does she?
2: She has three older brothers, and uh, maybe you can turn one of them. No, 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 no. He said it before. He said it before. I think he can do it again. All right, guys. You take care. You have a
1: great one, okay? Thanks, right. See you, Keith. Thank you for the time
2: to my daddy.